Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Flashpoint. Shining light on the issues that matter to you in Philadelphia. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. I'm KYW's Antoinette Lee, and this week on Flashpoint, it's been called a national crisis. 35 years is the average life expectancy of trans women of color. But what is being done? We not only need legislation passed, we also need legislation enforced, and we need a cultural change. In honor of Pride Month, we sat down with Claudia Haddad to hear her story of coming into her truth at the age of 72. Being who I am today, it was my choice. And we're highlighting a local youth house that's addressing the disparities in youth homelessness with more than four walls and a roof. Many of these young people don't find themselves supported, and that's where Valley Youth House steps in. It's a half hour you need to hear straight ahead on Flashpoint. At least 27 trans women or gender nonconforming people have been killed this year, and this is being called a national crisis. What is being done and how is this being addressed by lawmakers locally and statewide? Here to discuss on Flashpoint, we have with us Kendall Stevens. She is an LGBTQ plus advocate and an executive board member of William Way. We also have Ryan Matthews, Pennsylvania director of the Human Rights Campaign. Kendall and Ryan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. Thank you. So Kendall, your story made local and national headlines last year. I want to focus in on that exact moment when you decided that it was time to advocate for yourself and for others. Yeah, it actually, the, the genesis of it um, began when a friend of mine, trans experience, Dominique Remy Fells, was uh, savagely murdered June 9th of 2020 and the anniversary of her death is coming up very soon. And um, when she was uh, attacked and dismembered and thrown into the Schuylkill River, I knew her. You know, she was someone who I regarded as a friend, um, someone that I was helping at various points in her life. And um, it shook me to my core. Then two months later, I found myself in an almost similar predicament when people barged into my home and uh, beat me within a half inch of my life in front of my adolescent goddaughters. And it was absolutely terrifying. I thought I was actually being murdered. At that point, I knew that I could not stand by and hope for things to change. I had to be an active voice. I had to be an active presence. There were so many people who need me that need my strength, that need my resilience, that need to hear my testimony so that they feel confident to come out in their truth, feel confident to report crimes against them, um, feel confident in knowing that things will be done uh, to help protect the trans community. And so I want to ask if you have had to deal with things like this before in the past and, and how often would you say? Oh, I've been attacked before uh, plenty of times. I was uh, definitely preyed upon. My um, entire 
uh, adolescent life, you know, for, for sexual uh, violence and, uh, and physical and emotional violence. I experienced violence in the home from family members, from the public. You know, I was attacked at a college before, um, sustained brain damage. A lot happened uh, with me uh, in regard to my relationship with violence, almost all of the times because I was transgender. Those are those accounts are so um, hard to listen to. So I can only imagine like experiencing them. So Ryan, I want to ask you, where does legislation in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania stand right now in terms of protection for the transgender community? You know, Pennsylvania does not do very well compared to uh, many other states in protections for transgender uh, people and LGBTQ people, you know, writ large. Um, we have no non-discrimination law. Uh, that applies to sexual orientation or gender identity in Pennsylvania. We also have no statewide hate crimes law uh, that applies to either sexual orientation or gender identity. Philadelphia does have uh, protections, uh, but one of the things that we see, and I think Kendall's story is an excellent example of this, is that uh, those protections are only as good as um, the folks who are enforcing those. And so we not only need uh, legislation passed. We also need uh, legislation enforced, and we need a cultural change. The community is not viewed as such an acceptable scapegoat as it is now. Kendall, what's your reaction to hearing, you know, the the protections that that aren't there for you? There are virtually no protections at all. Um, the best that can happen when you are a, a victim of a hate crime and you identify as a transgender or gender non-conforming is an ethnic intimidation charge, which has no teeth. Um, these charges are typically thrown out during the preliminary process or at some point during um, a criminal justice um, process. And um, even if it does stick, you don't see the level of enhancement that you would see with an actual uh, protected class of person who would be worthy of protection um, as a court, in accordance to the um, hate crime law as it currently stands in Pennsylvania. I'm very disappointed, very disappointed with many of Pennsylvania's lawmakers who seem uh, very adamant and creating and passing, you know, anti-trans bills. And, and yet you don't see the same sense of urgency and including transgender people um, as protected members um, in our hate crime statute. These aren't just writings on the wall anymore. These are flashing, um, glaring neon signs of fear and hatred being injected into law. And um, it's, it's histrionic of what marginalized people have had to deal with and continue to deal with um, since the dawn of our democracy, having to fight tooth and nail um, to just get the bare minimum of protections. And we can't even get that much. Um, and that just is very telling of how the Commonwealth on a whole at large views me as a transgender woman. You know, I think about me being transgender. I think about me being um, Black. I think about me living under the poverty line and all of these factors um, really contribute to uh, me being statistically vulnerable because of all of these factors intersecting at a crisis in my life, which puts me at great harm. So Ryan, I wanna ask in your role as the Pennsylvania director of the Human Rights Campaign, what have you all been doing to combat this? There have been laws uh, that have been proposed uh, 
year after year, session after session uh, in the General Assembly to address some of these issues. There is a non-discrimination package that has been introduced and also a uh, an anti-discrimination bill introduced by Representative Dan Frankel from Pittsburgh. We have seen support for those measures uh, increase over recent years. However, their advocates are unable to get a vote uh, for either piece of legislation. And you know, we at the Human Rights Campaign view that as the will of the Republican leadership uh, in the House of Representatives and, and to an extent in the Senate as well. So what we're doing is we're organizing to try to change uh, the makeup of the legislature and try to replace some anti-LGBTQ uh, legislators uh, with uh, people who are pro-equality and who are willing to stand up for uh, not just uh, the gay community or the lesbian community, but the transgender community and all marginalized people across the Commonwealth. You said something really interesting there. You said that the, the advocates aren't able to get a vote in it, and we know that America is becoming uh, more accepting. So why do you think that overlap is there where they're unable to get what they need? I think that uh, that would be an excellent question for the majority leader of uh, the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. My personal opinion is that if uh, a vote on either of these bills were brought to the floor of either chamber today, they would pass. And that is one of the reasons why the Republican leadership does not want to see either bill move out of committee. And Kendall, um, I want to give you a chance to reflect on that as well. You know, this is this is classic uh, tyranny of the majority here. You really have to call these people out so you can hold them accountable to these harmful and discriminatory actions, especially during re-election. And I think people just in general are just tired of the blood and brimstone that we have endured during this pandemic and in my life as a trans woman, the epidemic of fatal violence. What I've been trying to do is continue to build intersection, continue to build allyship, continue to reach my hand across the aisle, even though I know that often I'm putting my hand through a guillotine. Um, This is what I have to do because I have to reach the hearts and minds of these people who hold the power because they do hold the power over my life, over the lives of my community, and they're abusing it. You know, you think about the Biden-Harris administration and, you know, how they have been so pro-trans, pro-LGBTQ in general. And then you look at uh, legislative uh, processes here, and they're creeping at a snail's pace. It's, It's very sad. It's very frustrating. And you know, I think I've come to the consensus that some people are just absolutely hell-bent on encroaching upon the lives, livelihoods, and rights um, of the LGBTQ community and just have convinced themselves that under no circumstances um, will the LGBTQ plus community enjoy any protective rights whatsoever. Is there a toll that, uh, that comes with being outspoken as a transgender woman? Of course it is. There's a target on my back. Every time I walk outside of my door, there's a target on my back, even me being in my home, um, which was already proven back in August of 2020, I'm not safe anywhere. And, and I know that the louder I speak, the more visible that I am, that the more I run the risk of someone targeting me uh, for, for harm or some sort of uh, retribution in some sort. I'm not really able to experience any sort of cognitive relief as cognitive dissonance that I'm experiencing. 
so many more of the people that I know and love who are part of my community are going through the same thing. They're scared to leave their homes. They're scared to speak out. They're scared to say how they feel. And because I know that I have to do what I have to do, I have to fight because I may not live until tomorrow. They 35 years of age is the average life expectancy of a trans woman of color. I'm 35. I do not expect to make it to 40. That's my reality. So for lawmakers to spend all this time and energy to circumvent pro-trans legislation from, you know, making its way up to the House and, and Senate is uh, very telling of how they feel about the LGBTQ community, especially the trans community. Almost a year ago today, I remember uh, covering uh, Black Lives Matter protests. This was in the heat of uh, the chaos and uh, unrest. And I remember seeing uh, pictures of your friend Remy um, all over. They were all over posters. They were all over murals. They were everywhere. And I was wondering if you might be able to tell us um, about Remy and, and tell us what that loss was like for your community. It was a huge loss to our community. Um, She was someone who was just a vibrant, live out loud, colorful person that just really did a effortless job of maintaining cool under pressure, of puffing her chest up, holding her head up high and facing a world that targeted her every day. Um, Unfortunately for Remy, she had to navigate some very uh, dark uh, corners in life um, to survive. This was a a world that she lived in. She was trying to escape that reality. And it was an uphill battle because you're a trans woman of color, especially a, a trans woman of color who was under the poverty line. You experience uh the ill effects of social determinants that are affecting every key area of your life um housing insecurity food insecurity housing discrimination employment discrimination you 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 deal with all this you know health um issues that are disproportionate um uh as it pertains to our community like for instance um hiv rates 49 times the average when you are a trans woman of color These are the obstacles, the barriers that we have to overcome and deal with day in and day out. We have not caught a break. And then we have to also worry about getting attacked by just walking down the street, going to the corner store, going to a restaurant, going on uh, the train, the trolley, um, just walking the street, minding your business. This is what we have to deal with. So this was a really big loss for us, but I gained so, so much inspiration and motivation from how she lived her life because she lived her life unapologetically. She lived her life without fear of anything. She was the definition of fearless. Sometimes she scared me. I'll be like, Remy, oh my goodness, are you sure you know about this or about that? And she'd be like, I'm living me, I'm doing me, you know? And it was just so much freedom in that, you know? And I was very scared to do certain things. I said, oh, if I do this, or if I go here, or if I say this, I'm going to be a target. And she didn't worry about that. And, you know, I, I just gained so much from her. Um, and I, I'm glad to have met her. And anyone that has met her um, 
has been touched by, by her presence in a positive way. And Ryan, I wonder if from your perspective, anything has changed over the past year since all of this, these protests and the unrest and, and Dominic's picture being everywhere. Unfortunately, I think one of the things that has changed is that uh, we've seen a backlash. Uh, Kendall referenced some of the wonderful advancements that are being made by the Biden-Harris administration. And I think some of the folks in this country who are not happy to see those things have gotten energized. And that's why we have seen a wave of anti-trans legislation hit the the state legislatures that is more robust than anything that we have seen uh, in recent memory. And so we have to stay vigilant uh, against those things, uh, but we have a lot of opportunities too. We have right now in um, the Equality Act has passed the US House for the second time and we're awaiting action on it in the Senate. Uh, those of us who are uh, Pennsylvania residents and voters can make a big impact on that by calling Senator Pat Toomey uh, and Senator Bob Casey. Uh, Senator Casey has already expressed support for the bill, but we don't want to let him off the hook that easy and let them know that we want to see a vote, uh, a positive vote on the Equality Act. Uh, and, um, and the other thing uh, I think that we've seen is uh, a willingness of people like Kendall to speak out and tell their stories and, and to tell those of us who do not walk through life as a trans person of color what that lived experience is, is like. Uh, and so, you know, that is why I uh, want to thank Kendall for, for sharing that with us today. Pride Month comes around and, and there's a lot of talk about being an ally, right? So, Kendall, I, I wonder what exactly is an ally for you? An ally is someone who deeply connects with the plight of someone who is oppressed. They understand the dynamics that are at play that are keeping this oppressed people from not being crushed under the weight of that oppression. So um, for me, you know, being transgender, anyone who's an ally to me knows of the opportunities that are not present for me. Uh, they know of the obstacles that I have to um, uh, deal. They, they know the uh, trajectory that I am placed on. Um, and they're able to operate in spaces that um, I've been um, uninvited to. And in these spaces, they're able to do a lot of uh, good, they're able to um, be an echo chamber for our needs and, and, and what we need to move forward uh, for our community. So um, they become like our spokespeople in a way. And that's very important because, you know, you want an ally to be able to navigate these spaces where you may not be invited to or it may feel unsafe in um, so that they can tell truthful narratives that will hopefully replace harmful, untrue narratives that do not speak to um, the dignity of uh, the transgender and gender non-conforming experience. This is very, very important here. You know, we're talking about explicit and implicit biases that have run amok. We're talking about um, people, lawmakers especially, prioritizing politics over people. Um, and, you know, we're talking about this across the aisle conversation that is stagnant right now. And what stands firmly at the center of that 
um, uh, a lot of times is just an inability for uh, people to understand each other. So an ally becomes that intermediary that is able to uh, speak for the trans community um, to other communities who would otherwise not entertain um, at all the presence of someone who is trans identified. And that's very, very important, you know, breaking down those barriers um, that usually um, happens with the help of an ally. They're very critical uh, for us to uh, start um, and, and build upon uh, these conversations, um, these cross-pollinating um, uh, dialogues that will help us get from the stuck point that we're in right now, where uh, people are very tethered to their personal ideological frameworks uh, to get to a place where we can put that aside and be able to empathize and put themselves into the shoes of another person and see how they walk through life. They may not know to the full degree that I walk through my life, but you hope that by seeing through the lenses that someone like me experiences every day that some empathy will be built, some humanity will be built because as it stands now, uh, people are not handling the trans population properly. Uh, they're, they're being extremely uh, disrespectful. They're discrediting, disavowing who we are and they're putting us at grave harm by not allowing um, these protective pieces of legislation to travel, traverse um, in, in the way that it's supposed to legislatively. Um, and to hold that process hostage is extremely un-American, is to me um, unconstitutional, and it's emboldening people to continue to attack us. It's emboldening uh, people to continue to uh, disrespect and disregard us. Ryan, um, I want to give you a last chance to dance, so to speak, as we reach the conclusion here. I would just add that um, I think what Kendall said is hit the nail right on the head. But something that I was told a while ago that I like to keep in mind is that allyship is rather than something that we are, it's something that we do. Um, and rather than being an ally, uh, we can practice good allyship and we can always be better at it. Um, and if we fail at it someday, that's okay, because there's tomorrow. Uh, and that um, the point that Kendall made about empathy is that those of us who are good at allyship are good at taking our empathy and sharing it with those who we have access to, who might not have as much as we do, and explaining the experiences that have helped us build that empathy. Ryan and Kendall, thank you so much for joining us on Thank you. Thanks for having us. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Now, back to Flashpoint from KYW News Radio, 103.9 FM. Our newsmaker this week is Claudia Haddad, who came out to the LGBTQ plus world later in life at the age of 72 years old. She passed as a cisgender woman for decades before she decided to walk fully into her truth. KYW's Sheridan Howard tells us that today she's a voice of hope in the Philly trans community. Welcome, Claudia. Happy Pride Month. Yes, happy Pride. 
Your story speaks to the spirit of Outfest and Pride Month because it's a shining example that it's never too late to be yourself. And you said when you were coming up, coming out just really wasn't an option. I'm 72 years old now. I came out into the LGBTQ community four years ago because I thought I had something to give to the trans community. So things were very different. You said when you were coming up, there was less acceptance and more fear. Can you share just how dangerous it was just to be yourself? <laughs> Very dangerous. We were living in an era that the police was nasty. Going to jail, being committed. We had a chief of police. His name was Rizzo. Then he became the mayor. And so he didn't like anything that was different or of color. So being yourself just wasn't an option. No, it was not. I've been transitioning since 1968. I was final in 1974 until I found the right doctor were going to correct nature's mistake. So there was no William Way. We would meet at Rittenhouse Square and we all sat on the wall being cute with each other. And then if we had news of doctors and who could give us hormones and stuff like that, we would share it. And most of us that were in Rittenhouse Square were more into that trans situation. And we all had gender dysphoria. And so some of us went along with our plans. Some of us didn't. Some of us killed themselves. So you say surviving was a matter of mastering the art of hiding in plain sight and doing your best to blend in as a cis woman. And that's what most of us did. You make sure you blend in with the cis community and you went on. I went to Europe. At the time, Europe was a lot more forgiving, a lot more accepting the differences until I finally came back and went to my mother's house. So when you came back, where did you find your strength? Where did you get the most support? within my indigenous community. My indigenous community accepted me as I am with no questions, no nothing. Being myself, I had a lot of respect by my grandmother's people. My grandmother's people are called Mi'kmaq. As indigenous people, we accept up to six genders. That's part of our traditions. And I'm getting chills now talking about this. So being mixed was also difficult. You're indigenous as well as white. So trying to fit in again was a problem. I fit more into my indigenous family. So I embraced it totally. You described community as an underground community in the 1960s because that's where you got your hormones and then you would slip back into the mainstream as a cis woman and blend. Can you tell us about that? That's right. We had to just find who would give it to us. And they gave us everything. We were guinea pigs at the time. Today, there is a systematic way of treating people with gender dysphoria, but then there wasn't. I survived, you know. And back then you said to get the designation as being a woman, you had to jump through a lot of hoops. You had to get a therapist that would declare you as someone suffering from gender dysphoria to take the next steps in your transition. You had to go through a psychiatric evaluation. They expected you to live as a woman with no problem for two years. You had to pass. And then I did do strip and I worked in go-go bars. And, you know, by doing this kind of work, you learn how to act feminine. And you had to make a lot of sacrifices. You had to put a lot of things behind you, but you also had to make some difficult choices just to make a living, just to survive. 
And you said you weren't alone. Many of your friends and the people that you came up with had to make those same sacrifices. I walked the streets. That's how I made some money. I had to go into also prostitution. Everything helped. I have no shame to say that. My best thing was to go on welfare because welfare gave me the psychiatric help. Welfare gave me work. So I had a job as a woman and I had to go through that so I could have an evaluation to my next step for my operation. And after your operation, you lived as a cis woman for years and then decided to enter the LGBTQ community as a trans woman. What were some of the struggles? Entering the LGBT community and especially the trans community would give some examples of what we went through. They would listen, but sometimes we old ones have a difficult time to put our point across because today it's everything quick. And so you have to have patience, and a lot of people today don't have patience. Similar to when you were coming up in the 60s and 70s, safe and affordable housing was really nearly impossible to find for LGBTQ people, especially trans women. If legislations are put in place, they should really put out some housing that could be affordable for any walk of life. It changes everybody's standard of living, having affordable house, having a security. Despite the difficulties, you decided to come out anyway. And later in life, into an entirely new community, you could have just continued passing as a cis woman. Why didn't you just do that? Because that was my choice. Being who I am today, it was my choice. I was correcting a mistake. And so I had to take it in my hand. So if you could speak to your 25-year-old self, what would you say? If I have to talk to my 25-year-old self, is that you're going to do fine. Because you have a good head on your shoulder. And you know where you're going. You know that you're going to have a hard time. And you're going to have a good time. And that's life. Thank you so much, Claudia. I appreciate your time. Happy Pride. Flashpoint returns in a moment on KYW News Radio 1039 FM. If you're considering home care for yourself or a loved one, Patriot Home Care makes it easy with a caring and compassionate staff. Don't be overwhelmed by all the choices. Let Patriot Home Care help. Patriot Home Care is growing with offices throughout Philadelphia and now in Delaware. Patriot is accepting caregivers and new clients virtually as well. At Patriot, you will love what you do and feel rewarded by taking care of people who need your help. Patriot also offers some of the area's best pay, benefits, and a $600 sign-on bonus to new caregivers. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week is presented by Patriot Home Care. It's a story that's all too common. Young people who are thrown out of their house by family members for their lifestyle choices. Joe Lynch says Valley Youth House is the bridge where those disparities exist. We see on average about 600 to 750 young people sleep on the streets of Philadelphia every night. Of that group, 40% of those young people identify as LGBTQ+. That's a growing population. They help kids as young as 14 years old who are rejected and left with nowhere to go. Without Valley Youth House, a lot of these young people would be sleeping on the streets, staying in family situations which are unhealthy, or many of these young people we find couch surfing, so living on friends and relatives' couches or total strangers' couches. None of those are really safe options. Since 1973, Valley Youth House has been leading the way to resolving youth homelessness and giving young people the foundation they need for survival and for brighter futures. We 
started as the first housing program for LGBTQ youth in Philadelphia. And we've just launched with the first host homes program for LGBTQ youth, which is a new model of housing for young people. It's in the state. It hasn't been done before. Nearly 50 years later, they've become more than just a roof and four walls. The agency is more like a chosen family that provides critical resources, including safety, healing, job placement, educational and life-saving support. These young people are from the most vulnerable populations. They're underserved communities, marginalized individuals. And what we see from a societal aspect of percentages of hate crimes, percentages of discrimination, percentages of neglect really can be transferred, sadly, quite well to the firsthand experiences of, of these young people that come to Valley Youth House. Lynch says they run over 76 different programs in Philadelphia and surrounding counties, which is a testament to how they prioritize the needs of young people from different backgrounds. Oftentimes, young people don't find themselves comfortable in adult shelters because there's risks of violence or especially for LGBTQ young people, there is double the risk of violence and trauma and abuse. While everything else closed during the pandemic, Valley Youth House stayed open. What the pandemic has has shown for us as an essential agency, we never closed our doors. We never laid off staff. We were here for young people 24-7. And Lynch says during Pride Month and every other month, they're committed to support and solutions. For the most part, that's the biggest key, is that many of these young people don't find themselves supported, and that's where Valley Youth House steps in and really is able to uh, say to these people, we can do this together. Let's make a path that is right for you, and, and let's go with that. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter at Flashpoint Show. I want to wrap us up with this quote. Sometimes the greatest impact is in what you do, not what you say. Let us not love with words or speech, but in action and truth. This show was produced by Arian Fulcher, Sheridan Howard, and me, your host, Antoinette Lee. Until next week, thanks for listening. Flashpoint is a production of KYW News Radio 1039 FM. For more, go to KYWnewsradio.com slash Flashpoint and subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast wherever you can. Get your shows presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives.